So, just how sick are you of doing video calls? What if you could get an artificial intelligence face to do those calls for you? Yes, this week on Download This Show, I mean, let's be honest, there's been dumber ideas in 2020. Also on the show, Washington DC has been pushing to break up huge tech companies, but why? And would it make any material impact on your and my life? And is it even doable? Plus, Twitter and Facebook, are they doing enough to stop misinformation? And is Tinder doing enough to stop sexual assault? All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Joining us from Access Informatics, software developer and commentator, Peter Marks. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Mark. Good to get out. And science and technology editor with the National Indigenous Television Network, Ray Johnson. Welcome back to download this show. Thanks for having me back. All right. You might have seen this week that Four Corners and Triple J's Hack program did a special episode all about whether online dating services like Tinder are doing enough to protect people from abuse that happens both on the platform and then when they meet up in real life. And it's raised really big questions about these services and what they can do moving forward to do better and what they've really failed to do in the past. Ray, I might just get you to go back a little bit for people that haven't seen The Four Corners, and you should watch The Four Corners if you haven't. What exactly did it uncover, Ray? Yeah, so this is a really timely investigation to to start off with because use of Tinder has increased dramatically since coronavirus restrictions have started. So it's really useful for people to know this information. But uh, Hack uh, did a public call out about safety on dating apps and they had a few hundred people, I think it was about 400 people that they responded. Most of them were using Tinder. Uh, Nearly 50 of those that responded to this call out had reported some kind of sexual offence on the platform and only 11 of those people had received a reply from Tinder. So this is already looking really bad. But, you know, the the reply that they were getting is a a generic standard kind of response that didn't give any information about what might happen. It's basically a thanks thanks for your report. And this story detailed one particular woman who had been brutally raped and reported it to Tinder and received one of those thanks for submitting responses and absolutely nothing else. And other women have attempted to report being raped and then found that the rapist had unmatched them on the platform. And this is crucial because unmatching with someone on Tinder deletes your entire conversation history. So these rapists are unmatching to delete any evidence in the lead up to the attack and delete any way for them to be identified. And it's just horrific because essentially what's happening through these messages is is grooming. They are making their victims feel comfortable enough to go to their home and then subjecting them to the most awful abuse. And Tinder isn't helping catch them. Now, Peter, Tinder is owned by a larger group called Match Group. And one of the other things that came out mm. of the program, which I really do encourage people to watch, you can find it on ABC iView, is that uh, a number of former staff, in fact, I believe they contacted 90 former staff of Match Group who say that the company just isn't equipped or, or certainly not resourcing uh, their complaints as the uh, allegations they've put forward, Peter. Yeah, so the former staff say that they're very under-resourced, that uh, they're overwhelmed with complaints and uh, and I think, uh, as Ray said, 
the reply that is given back to people is a pretty generic one that says uh, uh, that, uh, you know, thank you for your inquiry. And I think it actually says, we will not let you know what happens. So some of the people who reported to Triple J and uh, Four Corners have said that they've then learned from other people that the same person has been abusing multiple victims and they just serially move on from one person to the next person. So the platform is really a, a great enabler for these terrible abusers. And something's got to happen. I think um, all of the social media platforms try to be as efficient in terms of staff as possible. They try to automate things, to use AI and to avoid having to have staff on board actually making decisions. Yeah, Tinder coming out and saying that they're under-resourced and that they just don't have the capability to keep up with these kinds of reports. Is, you know, we're talking about a parent company that makes $2.8 billion. For them to not take mm. this seriously enough to provide proper resources for these things to be investigated and for them to assist with police investigations. That's part of that report. You know, the New South Wales Police Assistant Commissioner said that these platforms are not helping them with their investigations In fact, I think he said that they had just an email address that they had to use to contact them, whereas some other social media actually has a, a liaison person. But I think Tinder, it's just you have to email and hope to get a reply. And it's just incredible because, you know, I think people make a lot of, oh, you met them online, it's really dangerous. But, you know, if you met your rapist at a pub, that pub would have to do everything in its power to help the police in their investigation. They'd have to pull security footage, they'd have to interview staff, they'd have to have to help identify this person and help catch them. But Tinder can just delete the message history, send out a generic message and say, sorry, we're not resourced enough to be able to help you. And it's just not good enough. So, Ray, let's talk about what a proper solution would look like. What are the sorts of things that would, at least, I mean, would at least go some way to stopping some of these horrific things that we've seen over the last couple of months? Absolutely. Uh, so there's actually a service that Tinder has in the US that isn't available here in Australia, and it's called Noonlight that they team up with. Uh So it needs permission to track you at all times. And I think that's one of the things that deters people a little. And the company has been known to sell that data. So that's also another bit of a downside. But essentially, you enter information about your date, who you're meeting with, where you'll be. And Noonlight is kind of like a backup. You know, once you're on that date and you, if you have access to your phone, you can hit a panic button and Noonlight asks you to enter a code. And if you don't, you know, turn that code off, basically, it will send a text message. And then if you don't answer that text message, it will call you. And then if you don't answer that call, they will send emergency services out to you. So that is one service that they could roll out internationally. But really the most obvious one is allow the authorities access to those messages. Don't allow perpetrators of violence to delete any evidence of what the lead up to these attacks has been and help get these people off the platform. They say that they can't ban people. You know, it's too difficult. You know, people can use VPNs. You have to ban specific IP addresses. They reset in 90 days, all these things. And among all the dating platforms. You know, Tinder is often touted as the safest and as having the most safety features. You know, they just introduced photo verification so that you can see that the photo of the person that you're meeting is the person that you're meeting, for instance. But it's still not enough. Look, I think 
you know, people who are dating like the anonymous nature of it, that they can be a bit anonymous and have a persona without their real name. And, of course, this is a double-edged sword. This means that uh, perpetrators can be anonymous. I believe they need an email address, which, of course, is easy to get. You can get a free email any old time. And you need a phone number. But then again, you can get phone numbers pretty easily. So it's very easy for perpetrators to have multiple accounts set up. And there's things that Tinder could do. They could look, as, as Ray said, at IP addresses to see if there's a lot of accounts from the same IP address and uh, you know they could I mean I'm sure they don't actually delete those conversations when you unmatch something someone they would still be there and I think they should add a feature so that if someone wants to use the past conversations as evidence that the person can choose to access that again at the moment there's no facilities for that to help you make a complaint and secondly they need to have staff on the ground who answer the phone and actually act on things rather than just an email or, or sending a canned response. Download this show is what you're listening to. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, that episode of Four Corners is on ABC iView now. In studio this week, we have Ray Johnson, uh, technology and science editor for NITV, and Peter Marks from Access Informatics. Mark Fennell is my name. And over in the US, for a, a couple of years now, there's been an ongoing debate about whether or not these huge tech companies, so your Googles, your Facebooks, etc., should be broken up. I mean, particularly if you look at Google, I mean, we call it Google, but there's a parent company named Alphabet, which owns Google and a bunch of other companies. And these companies have, you know, GDPs bigger than countries these days. And so uh, in the US, Congress, Peter, have, uh, I guess, tried to execute an argument to some extent for why they should be broken up. How has it gone? Well, after a full year of, uh, of hearings and thinking, uh, the US Congress has produced a 450-page report uh, that came out on October 6th, um, and it's got some arguments in there. They, they looked at Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Uh, they really got a pretty weak argument, I think, about breaking them up. Of course, you know, these companies, although they are big in their own sectors, they make up only a tiny proportion of the world economy. So, you know, they may have a... Uh, they may have some sort of monopoly in their field, perhaps advertising or search or, or you know, mobile operating systems. But in the general scheme of things, they're not a monopoly like the old days with things like railways and so on. So there's no smoking gun. There's no way – normally with these antitrust hearings, the, the, the thing that has been done wrong by having a monopoly is that consumers are paying more. But in this case, consumers are actually paying less tech. You get more tech for the same dollar year on year. And there's been some research where people have been asked to value things like access to, say, a search engine, and they said, oh, I would pay, I don't know, I think it was $17,000 a year to get the services of a search engine, which they get for free from, say, Google. So it's hard to see how this is actually going to go anywhere. Um, the report does call for more funding for the Federal Trade Commission, because I think if we've learned anything, some of these senators are really not the right people to be asking questions about tech. I mean, you remember <laughs> there was uh, someone asked Mark Zuckerberg about something on Twitter, and he had to sort of say, well, actually, uh, that's a different company. Don't I, I can't really help Jack, you with that. So we do need expert, <laughs> expert oversight, I think. When you look at what breaking these companies up actually looks like, it, it just sounds a bit silly. So, you know, not having Google be able to own Android or have Gmail or Chrome or, you know, Amazon not being able to have both the marketplace and sell its own products on its own website or, you know, Apple not being able to have Find My iPhone. It just, it just sounds like it's not really benefiting anyone 
in the long run. Mm. I, I, I don't think that they're stopping other competitors from coming into the space necessarily. And I think that these changes would be a big blow to consumers. I I think that we're the ones that actually benefit a lot. Obviously, these companies benefit a lot by making most of their money from these shared platforms and these ecosystems. But we get a lot about having all of our information stored on these platforms and shared mm. among these platforms and to be able to access these services that are shared. So I'm not really seeing who's benefiting by breaking it up. However, one of the recommendations that came out of this report that I think would is to make customer data more portable. So to be able to access all of your information, you know, to, to be able to basically grab everything that's on your Apple account and be able to port it over to another service, to have that data belong to you and to be able to take it with you wherever you go. And this would benefit new companies coming in and and startups and smaller businesses because it would make it easy to switch. When you look at one of the reasons why most people don't want to switch from Apple to Android or or any of those things, it's because they perceive it as being difficult. Yeah. And it's too hard to bring your data over from one to another. (laughs) It is difficult. Look, I say they perceive it as being difficult. it's so correctly. easy. They correctly perceive it's a difficult process. <laughs> so that that data portability, I think, is a key recommendation that's come out that I actually think would be implementable and useful. And I'd like to see that happen. You can download your data. I mean, it's part of the GDPR yeah. regulations, but the problem is you can't then upload it to someone else. So that exactly thing, and it's it's always going to be a problem because the data is different in each site. So who's going to do that work? Maybe it's a third party opportunity or something. But sometimes uh, it's really hard to delineate between what's anti competitive behaviour and actually what's hyper competitive behaviour. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, I, I sometimes I think the term anti competitive is actually quite misleading because often what these companies have done is they've become incredibly competitive, but it does seem. Like like we can't go on the way we have been going on at the very least, Ray. Having that injection of funds for the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice to actually be able to enforce some of the rules that would come into place around these businesses is crucial as well. I I think there's no point in saying, hey, you know, we'd we'd really love for Facebook not to influence the outcome of democracy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) If you could help it, please. (laughs) Yeah, that'd that'd be really great. So we're going to make this law, but we're also, you know, just going to strip you of most of your funding to be able to make sure that that doesn't happen. Like those two things don't work. So you need to fund the people that would be ultimately looking after the best outcome for this. But some of the practices of these these, um, walled gardens, you know, the the Amazon store, uh, Google's advertising and the Apple store where it's a store that is totally controlled by each of them. Amazon's been accused of, I think it's obvious that they, they do a lot of research. They know all the competing products you look at and then they just recommend their own products. Apple's got some practices within their store that are very hard to defend. Uh, you know, things like um, uh, when you use uh, Netflix on iOS, for example, and you have to sign up, you can no longer sign up using Apple, which means that they would get 30% and they used to get that. But not only that, but Amazon is not permitted to tell people how to sign up. They're not permitted to tell you that you can go to the website and sign up. They're not allowed under Apple's crazy rules to even have a link, surely, to go to a web you know, the web link to actually sign up. So they really are restraining people on their platform in ways that in the real world, in a real store, 
would be regarded as completely outrageous. And I think what we've got to do is make these walled garden stalls work a bit more like real stores do in terms of consumer protection. I don't know. Have you been to a Woolies or Coles recently? There's a lot of that behaviour going on there too. I know, and they push their own product. So it's hardly surprising. You say, oh, Amazon's pushing their own products. Well, of course they are. And, uh, you know, Coles or Woolies, they put their generic products at the end of the aisle and do the same sort of things. That's not surprising. What I think, though, is different is that the monitoring that Amazon Amazon knows all of the competing products you bought, you've looked at, all of that sort of stuff, and they're using information to even decide what products to develop themselves because they have intelligence. They know what all their competitors sell. I guess supermarkets do to some extent too. They just know that if they flog enough ushies to my kids, I'm going to go back. Download this show is what you're <laughs> listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. Uh, we have Peter Marks from Access Informatics and Ray Johnson from NITV. And uh, yes, uh, you may have noticed there is a US presidential election on at the moment and, and that's produced an uncommonly large amount of pressure on certainly some of the big tech companies, including some of the ones we were just talking about, Facebook and Twitter. Facebook have said they're going to widen bans on political ads. Uh, what is that actually mean? Yeah, so they've, they've said they're going to take preventative me- measures to <laughs> keep, we're all doing it, to keep political candidates from being able to use Facebook to manipulate the election and its outcome and what happens after its outcome as well. Uh, misinformation on social media at the moment and particularly on Facebook is, I think it's fair to say, at an all-time high. I think with the combination of the upcoming US election and also the the global pandemic. And basically Facebook are, are now going to ban any political advertising after the polls close. And they've said that that's just going to be for as long as they want as well. And and I think the idea here is to stop any you know, particular political party to be able to take out an ad and go, we won. Hold <laughs> on, hold be- on. Why? This is, forgive me, this might seem like an incredibly dumb question, but why are they doing it from the polls closing? Why aren't they doing it from, oh, I don't know, months ago when they were asked mm. to do this in the first place? Look... Look, I think the answer to this is money and it will always be money. But, yeah, they're they're trying to stop there being misinformation about the outcome of the election. But it appears that they're still not really doing enough to combat misinformation in the lead up to the election. This is nonsense. I don't understand the logic of it at all. Yeah, and they're actually they're going to put a notification at the top of your newsfeed to let you know that there hasn't been a winner decided until the winner has been decided. It's it's all this massive amount of effort to stop anyone from saying Trump's been re-elected, Biden's been elected. And the amount of effort that they're putting into this, I feel like, is kind of grossly misplaced considering the history of Facebook and how it has been used in previous elections uh, to manipulate actual outcomes. It's, it's, it's a bizarre... It's a bizarre path that they've taken as far as I'm concerned, but you know they've never really been at the forefront of wanting to do anything about the problems that the platform <laughs> creates. I'm sorry. I feel like <laughs> I, I feel like I'm missing something. Like I've, re- I've read these articles, I've, heard, I've read Zuckerberg's response like three times over, Peter, and I just look at it and go, you're going to do it after the election. It doesn't make any sense well, to me at all. Am I missing something, Peter? Well, they say they've spent $5.1 million on, uh, you know, on, on efforts to mitigate 
false information, particularly about elections. I mean, they are guilty in 2016 of being partially responsible. They took money, money from Russian people who wanted to uh, to uh, influence the election and they, they clearly did influence the election. So this time, I guess it's too late to suddenly switch off. And I know you're going to say, well, they want the money for the ads and everything. But I think they are doing some, some good things. They are very concerned. Apparently, Facebook executives are very concerned about statements coming from the Trump White House, including Trump's son. They're basically calling people to, to violently uh, protest if the election doesn't go the way they want it to. And I think they're very concerned with what the social media platform could be blamed for in terms of uh, causing some sort of crazy uprising after the election. So I guess it makes sense in that sense. You know, they are going to do something there. Um, They've got some good people on board. They've got uh, uh, Guy Rosen, who's a respected journalism professor. He's uh, vice president of Integrity. And he's saying that this election is quite different to any other election in US history, that there is a chance that there'll be some sort of uh, rioting after the results come in. Five million dollars. Was it five million or five billion? I think you're right. I'm sorry, five billion. Yeah, it was. I think I said it was more than they'd made in the first few years. Oh, okay. I was going to say, that makes more sense. <laughs> I think Sorry. I think one of the one of the reasons that they're focusing on post-election as well has been uh, Donald Trump's hesitance to admit that he would concede defeat in any way, mm. uh, and I think that they might be concerned that there would be advertising placed or statements made that say that he has won when he has not. Perhaps. And more to the point, last time it was external actors who were buying ads, you know, Russians and, and people from other countries. But this time it's it's worse for them because it's actually Americans. It's actually people within the White House, people who you would think would be speaking the truth are the ones who are actually spreading uh, misinformation. So it makes it more difficult for them. And if they tag things as being false that have been said by the president, then this puts them in a very difficult position. And I know all the social media companies, they, they want to run cheaply. They don't want to be the arbiters of truth. And we're starting to push them that way. It's going to be very difficult for them to, to control. It's, it's just a fire hose of information and misinformation. And research shows continuously that misinformation, rumours, conspiracy theories spread better than truth. Mm. All right. Well, let's go from the slightly dark blue to the slightly lighter blue of Twitter, who have announced a range of changes to deal with the election coming online at around about October 20. Peter, what have they got planned? Yeah. So they've taken steps to slow down the way posts flow on the network to try and avoid an uprising specifically on election day. These these uh, changes are already starting to be put in. Um, they're going to change that they're going to slow down retweeting and if someone wants to retweet something that has been flagged as being false, then the user will be notified. There'll be a, a slide over that says, look, the thing you're about to share has been flagged as false. So... Uh, as I said with uh, with Facebook, I mean, a problem is that a lot of the false information is coming from within America, from from elected officials, indeed. So it's going to be very difficult for them. These features have started to roll out, and they stay. They're going. They say they're going to stay in place, and the look of Twitter will be different, and it will stay in place until the election result is widely confirmed. Ray, do you think that that tool of slowing down the retweets? Do you think it'll work? Look, I think it'll help people stop and think perhaps, which is something that's a little lacking online sometimes. I I think that one of the things that will really work 
for Twitter is what they've been doing, which has been fact-checking and verifying and providing people with additional information. You know, what they've been doing with Donald Trump tweets lately has just been beautiful to watch. It's you know, the, the whole labelling of, of tweets saying, hey, uh, this is misinformation, but it's coming from one of the most powerful men in the world, so we thought that it was important for you to see it. I think having measures like that in place takes a really strong stand on behalf of Twitter. I never thought out of all the platforms that Twitter would be the one that I'd be, you know, (laughs) raising my fist in the air to. But they've been doing a lot of good work in this space when other spaces, Facebook, have been really hesitant to step up and rock the boat. And it's an interesting dynamic and relationship between Trump and Twitter as well, because (laughs) Trump really needs Twitter. And it's been argued for a really long time that Twitter really needs Trump. And Mm. I think with everything that's coming out now and and the stance that Twitter is taking, I think they're establishing themselves for a world post-Trump where they get everyone else on side. And I'm all for it. Mm, very interesting. And uh, lastly, here on Download This Show, uh, all of us are sick of video conferencing. Let's agree on that. But um, the worst part of video conferencing is when it glitches, when you freeze or when it's buffering or you've accidentally left yourself on mute, which happens all the time. What if the solution to that was a little bit of technology that would create a virtual impression of your face all the times it glitches? Uh, Peter, this is a thing now. <laughs> Yes, so uh, NVIDIA, the company that makes uh, big GPU uh, accelerator cards and things, has uh, demonstrated a technology that is built on a system that's used for deep fakes. So what it does is, rather than sending all the frames of the video, although with some compression, it sends a still image of, of your face to the other side, the person on the other side, and then it sends a mesh of points that are the, the movements in your face. So that's driven by the expressions and things like that. So they can send what looks like an image, a moving image of the person you're talking to over a three kilohertz channel. So about the same amount of uh, uh, data speed as what you're just using for audio. So look, it's a really cute idea. I mean, it actually looks okay and they do some other clever things like um, they move the face so it looks like it's looking straight into the camera and they move your eyes so it looks into it. And, uh, you know, on the surface, it's quite a good tech demo. Uh, I have some hesitations. I really wonder what the market is. This is people who have big, expensive accelerator cards, but have a very poor internet connection. So who are the, who's those uh, two bubbles going to intersect with? Right. Is it possible that we've finally found a use for deep fakes that isn't wildly creepy? <laughs> Oh, look, I, st- I think this is still wildly creepy. I think this is horrific. I never <laughs> I never want this to be me. If I freeze, I freeze. It's a fact of life. I think we need to become just more okay with there being glitches and imperfection in how we interact with each other as people and online and expecting everything to go smoothly and, and developing technologies to to fill those gaps is is taking a step away from some of the the actual cool things that I think we've discovered about working during these, and I'm going to say it, I'm sorry, unprecedented times. <laughs> Drink! <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that we've developed a little bit more humanity and compassion and forgiveness with each other, being real people working within extraordinary scenarios. And you know, while this might make things run better and look better and look more slow, I don't think it's impressive at all. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love it when we have you on the show because you just bring it back down to earth a little bit. It's funny, like, all I want is for there to be an AI version of my resting face on Zoom, which shows me having a slightly less of a resting bitch face. Because one of the things I've realised about 2020 is, like, I look like somebody farted in the room. My uh, my resting face is such an unpleasant-looking <laughs> face. And I didn't realise this until the year of Zoom. So if they could just, oh, like, no. tweak the algorithm, I would be cool with that. I have a concerned resting face. <laughs> I always look like I'm really worried about something. And people will actually interrupt conversations to go, are you okay? Like, yes. what's happening? I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm just, I'm just thinking. This is my thinking face. All right. We are out of <laughs> time. Huge thank you to Ray Johnson, science and technology editor with the National Indigenous Television Network, NITV. It's such a great joy to have you back on the show, Ray. Pleasure as always. And Peter Marks from Access Informatics, uh, thank you so much. It's also equally a pleasure to have you on the show, Peter. And always a pleasure to see you, Mark. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you head along to whichever podcasting app you listen to us on and write down in detailed uh, adjectives how much you enjoyed the show. And with that, <laughs> I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show.